In this episode of Pastor Brad Rocks, this episode today is going to be massive in scope. I'm literally going to share with you the saga of God and salvation. We're going to start in eternity past before anything was created. We're going to walk down through creation and all of human history and straight on into eternity future. You're going to understand the sweeping big picture of all that scripture teaches about God and his relationship with us. Possibly. In a way you never have before. And I'm going to do it in a dramatic style that I've never done on this podcast before. I think you're really going to dig this, man. That's awesome. And finally, I'm stoked because I get to share with you a song called Saga. It's another track from my 2004 release, Out of the Hellhole. Another one of those songs that I wrote with my garage band, Black Rose, back in the mid-1980s. It's going to rock you up man. I can't wait to share it with you. I'm so glad you're here. I am seriously just like on the edge of my seat ready to get into this. All right, man, let's do it. Pastor Brad here, your 80s heavy metal headbanging, Jesus-loving online pastor. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Pastor Brad Rocks podcast. Hey, wherever you happen to be listening to this episode, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you're enjoying these podcasts, whatever platform you happen to be on, if you can leave a thumbs up or a comment or share this episode with a friend, that would be awesome to help the audience grow. God bless you, man. Thank you in advance so much for that. And now... Let's move on to the point of today's podcast. If you look up the word saga in the dictionary, first thing you see is that it's a noun, okay? And then it's defined this way. It's a long story of heroic achievement. That is what scripture is. It is the story of God's love for us and his desire to rescue us, his creation of all things, and then he plants us in the center of it, bearing his image, and then we reject him, and then we become slaves to sin, and God has to send a rescuer to redeem and save us by laying his life down in heroic, selfless sacrifice. And then there's this grand climactic ending at the end of the story. It's awesome. It's the greatest story ever told. We're going to unpack that today. But the first thing I want to do is look at scripture, okay, to set the stage. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, here's what Paul says. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Today, I want to share with you some context for those verses as I share with you the saga of God's eternal plan for salvation for the children of God. First, let's let's set the mood with some proper music. Once upon a time, in eternity past, God created something called time. And the Bible describes it this way. In the beginning, God set time in motion and he made what we call creation. He spoke and the sun and the moon and the stars and all of the cosmos, everything that we call creation came into being. And the Bible tells us that he did this through the word who we later find out 
is Jesus. All things were created through him and by him and for him. Then in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, we see the crowning act of God's creation. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God created man in his own image. Literally, he created man to bear his image on earth and to walk with him and to do good work that brought glory to God. Because God wanted people to choose to love him because they wanted to, not because they had to. He didn't create us as robots. He created us with a free will of our own. And so he put Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them a choice. And the choice was essentially to trust him or not to trust him. He put this tree in the middle of the garden and he called it the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, listen, you can eat from every plant in the garden, but stay away from that one. And what was implied in that was that that is a bad choice and I know that that's a bad choice. Trust me. I'm your heavenly father. I love you. Okay. It's like your mom and dad telling you when you're a little kid, don't play in the street. I know you might think it's fun, but I know better than you do. I've got a little bigger perspective. Okay. This is, that would be a bad choice. And so he said to Adam and Eve, stay away from that fruit because on the day that you eat that fruit, you will surely die. This is where the villain of the saga enters the story. He's called Satan. In the beginning chapters of Genesis, he's called the serpent, and he slithers his way up to Eve, and he begins to speak to her. And he says, Eve, did God tell you that you couldn't eat from all of the trees in the garden? And she said, oh, no, no, no. He said, we could eat any tree that we wanted. But he said, stay away from this one, because if we eat that one, we will die. And the serpent wove a crafty little lie. He's the father of lies. He's an expert lie teller. And he said, oh, no, 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 you won't die. God knows that when you eat that fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Well, there's a little sliver of truth in that. Their heart wasn't going to quit beating the moment they ate that forbidden fruit, but the moment they chose selfishness over trusting God, the relationship with God, who is the author of life, would end. And sadly, as we all know all too well, Adam and Eve chose their will over God's. They chose what they craved, what their flesh longed for over trusting God. They chose sin. The moment they disobeyed God and bit into that fruit, their eyes were open. And the Bible says that for the first time they felt shame. They'd never felt that before. And they ran and they hid and they tried to sew fig leaves together because they had realized that they were naked. And that means so much more than they realized they didn't have clothes on. They felt undone and exposed because of their guilt. In the next couple of verses, God comes back onto the scene and Adam and Eve hear him walking in the garden and they run and hide. And of course he calls out to them, Adam, where are you? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Remember, every time God asks a question, it's never for his benefit. He already knows the answer. He draws them out and he confronts them and they play the blame game. Adam says, it wasn't me, it was Eve. She, she made me do it. Eve says, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. He made me do it. And he did start it with the temptation. And so God then lays out the curse for sin and brokenness and sadness and frustration and sickness and all of this dysfunction that we see when we look around us, this brokenness came into the human 
experience. We became slaves to our sin nature, which leads to death. But this is also where the saga of God's redemption begins. Because you see in that same conversation, when he was laying out the curse for sin to Adam and Eve, he spoke to the serpent and he said, because you did this, cursed are you. And then he said to Eve in Genesis 3.15, that through you, Eve, will come a descendant who will rise up. And he looked right at the serpent and he said, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And in that moment, God declared war against the enemy and he promised that he would send a redeemer, a rescuer who would save us from our brokenness and restore our relationship with him. One of the very first steps in God's redemptive plan was to create a people who would be his people. And so he called a man named Abram who later became known as Abraham. And he spoke to him and he said, Abraham, I want you to leave your old life behind and come follow me, come trust and obey me. And Abraham said yes. And God promised Abraham that he would make his descendants into a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that through him and this nation, all nations on earth would be blessed. And so Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob, and Jacob fathered 12 sons. And from those 12 sons came the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes prospered and grew in number until their numbers seemed to outnumber the very stars in the sky. Through a series of events involving Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel, very small at the time, moved to Egypt where they prospered for an entire generation and everything was wonderful. But then in the next generation, a Pharaoh arose who enslaved the Israelites. For 400 years, they were under the taskmasters of the Egyptians, slaves to them, doing hard labor. By the way, God told Abraham that his descendants would be in slavery in a foreign land for 400 years. And that after that 400 years was over, he would raise up a deliverer, which is exactly what he did. He called Moses at the burning bush and he told him, you are my anointed one. You are the one. You are the one I'm sending to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And of course, there was a long exchange with plagues and punishment poured out on Egypt as the Pharaoh continued to say no each time, which crescendoed, came to a, a climax at the Passover, where God sent the angel of death through Egypt, but he initiated a brand new festival, a brand new feast. He said, I want you to sacrifice a lamb. We're going to call it the Passover lamb. I want each family to take a lamb and sacrifice it and take its blood and put it over the doorpost of the home. And I'm going to send the angel of death over Egypt. And when the angel sees the blood of the lamb, over your door, it will pass over your home. But death will come to every home that doesn't have the blood of the lamb over their home. Wow, this, the imagery there is amazing. And of course, after that, the Pharaoh said, get out of here, as the firstborn of every Egyptian home died that evening. And the Bible says that God made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the Israelites, which means they said, here, take gold, take jewelry, take anything you want. We just want you to leave. And so God orchestrated it so that not only did Israel walk out of Egypt, Egypt free, but they plundered them as they left. And God led his people out of Egypt right up to the shores of the Red Sea, which appeared to be a really stupid mistake. And Pharaoh saw it, but God was working in all of this. And God stirred up in the Pharaoh's heart remorse that he had let them go. And so he pursued them. And again, God was working in all of this. And when Pharaoh saw them with their backs to the Red Sea, he said, oh, we got them now, man. But God went back. He retreated to the back of the Israelite people and stood between them and the Egyptians as a pillar of fire. And he held them off 
while he split the Red Sea and created a dry path all the way across to the other side. And all through the night, the people of Israel crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as soon as all the Israelites were across, the pillar of fire disappeared and Pharaoh and his armies plunged into the path and pursued them. And then God allowed the waters to crush down and destroy all of them, cutting them off forever. And once that was over and behind them, he led the people to Mount Sinai, where Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, and God made his covenant with his people. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he promised them that he would bless them and be with them and protect them if they would just keep their eyes on him and love and follow him. And through Joshua, he led Israel across the Jordan and into the promised land through what we call the conquest. As they conquered the promised land and settled it as their own, God gave it to them and he blessed them and they did indeed prosper. And down through the ages, Israel continued to grow and God continued to reach out to them and love them and forgive them and work with them. And while so often the masses turned their hearts away from God, there was always a remnant, a remnant of people who trusted and obeyed and received grace from God through faith in him. At one point near the end of the Old Testament account, so much of Israel had turned their heart against God that he allowed enemies from the north and the east to sweep down other empires, Assyria, and then later Babylon, and then later Persia, to come in and crush them and take them off as slaves and captives. And for 70 years, they were in what the Bible calls the exile. And then by God's providence through King Cyrus, the king of Persia, God allowed them to return to their homeland. But no longer were they independent. There were always other occupying forces because they had turned their hearts against God. And when we turn our hearts against God, we always open the door for other evil forces to enslave us. Throughout this same period of Old Testament history, God sent prophet after prophet to his people to plead with them, to exhort them, to encourage them, to challenge them, and most of the time to call them to turn their hearts away from the world and to follow him afresh. And throughout all of these prophets' ministries, many, many, many of them dropped in messianic prophecies. Prophecies regarding a savior who would come, a promised one. And throughout these prophecies, they shared where he would be born, when he would come, why he would come, what he would do, how he would do it, what his mission would be. Finally, the Old Testament portion of the saga closes with the ministry of Malachi, who like all of his predecessors, was on a mission to call Israel to turn their hearts back to God. And when he put the period at the end of his final writing, we entered into what's called the 400 years of silence. Now this 400 year period is called the silent period and not the inactive period for a very good reason. Because while there was no writing going on, there were no prophets speaking, God was incredibly active working in the hearts of people and in the circumstances of humankind. He raised up Alexander the Great who conquered all of the known world and what he did was he brought Greek language along with Greek culture, but specifically Greek language to all of the known world so everyone would speak at least one common second language. And then he raised up Rome who conquered Alexander the Great and they built a road system and a shipping system that made it very easy to travel. And they brought something called Pax Ramona, which is Latin for the peace of Rome. So it was not only easy to travel, but it was also safe. The religious system of Israel evolved to where they had these Sadducees and Pharisees, these religious leaders, these scribes who became so pompous 
and so arrogant, so hypocritical that the people just were yearning for something authentic. It just all felt so fake. They wanted a genuine move of God. And at the same time, this huge desire for the anointed one, the Redeemer, the Messiah to come, this desire just grew stronger and stronger. When the appointed time had fully come, the hero, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, he finally came. The one who would crush the head of the serpent and free God's people stepped into history. The only problem is he didn't come the way the people expected him to come. They fully expected him to be a military political figure who would rally the people, man, to take up their swords and throw off and conquer all their oppressors. But that was not what Jesus was about. He was born in a little bitty village, the same city that King David was born in, by the way, which is one of the messianic prophecies that he fulfilled. But he was born in a little out of the nowhere place in the middle of the night to two very poor, humble Israelites, Mary and Joseph. Nobody except for a few shepherds and of course the angels and the people that the shepherds ran and told about it even knew it happened. And he grew up and at the appointed time he stepped into the waters of the Jordan and asked John to baptize him. And as he came up out of the waters, the Bible says the, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and made it clear, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Father said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus proclaimed the Father to us, told us what He's like, who He is, how He wants us to live, how He wants us to relate with Him. And then He took up the cross, like Isaiah prophesied that He would, and He became the suffering servant. And the punishment that brought us peace, Isaiah says, was placed upon him as he took the sin of the world upon himself and shed his blood for us on that cross. And here's the prophecy fulfilling backstory behind the events of Calvary. As the spikes were being driven through the flesh of Christ into that cross and he was lifted up, the serpent was striking him, just like Genesis 3.15 said, when God said, you will strike his heel. And it was a deadly blow and he died on that cross. But three days later, when he was raised by the power of the Father, guess what happened? He crushed the serpent's head. That means he crushed his power. He crushed the power of death. He crushed the power of sin for all who would put their faith in him. Jesus fulfilled every single messianic prophecy. That is a mathematical impossibility for anyone to do on accident or even if you came and just tried to do it, but you weren't the real person. There's no way. Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Just in case you're wondering, how does Jesus dying on a cross impact my life? Here's the big deal. All through the Old Testament, we're taught that God is righteous and He's holy and He's perfect. And as we read His law, we see what His standard was and what His call upon our life was. And we also learned that None of us measure up. We all fall short. Indeed, the New Testament says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the Old Testament teaches that as well. And, and because we fall short, we deserve death. We deserve to die. But in the Old Testament, God told the people, listen, when you sin, you can have a sacrifice that will substitute for you. You can sacrifice a lamb in place of yourself. The problem is a lamb doesn't cover your sin forever. It's just a momentary fix. You have to keep doing it over and over again. And so Jesus came as the once for all perfect Lamb of God. He lived the perfect life. He lived and, and obeyed the law perfectly. And he went to the cross sinless. And as God's son, he shed his blood once for all as the last sacrifice that would ever have to be made for sin. So now when we put our trust and hope in him, 
his blood covers our sin. And we are, the Bible says, we're justified. That means we're made through our faith in Jesus just as if we've never sinned. We have peace with God through Jesus. And in Romans 5, Paul says we stand in grace. (laughs) We stand in God's unmerited, unearnable favor because Jesus earned it for us and we receive it because of our faith in him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And today we are in the gospel age, the age when we get to proclaim the good news that God sent a hero, a rescuer, a redeemer, a Messiah, Jesus, and he went to that cross and he accomplished all that we just talked about for us. And we get to proclaim to everybody, man, if you'll put your faith in Jesus, you can receive this same salvation, this same forgiveness. This is what the Great Commission at the end of Matthew is all about. When Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to us the same thing through the written scriptures, go into the world and make disciples, make followers, help people to become followers of me, to surrender their life to me as Lord and follow me as a disciple, a learner, someone who's committed to me as Lord and Savior, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them, teach them to obey and walk in my ways every day. As Christ followers, we wake up and we say, thank you, God, for this day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Your mercies are fresh this morning. Thank you. You are with me even to the very end of the age. You have promised it. I can't wait to love you and serve you and shine for you this day. And we just live our life with a desire to glorify him with the words that come out of our mouth and the actions that we participate in and and the way that we treat people and our attitude and all of that. Every day, we just want to bring glory to God and we Look forward to the end of the story. The Bible says that at the end, we'll hear a great trumpet sound and the sky will split and our king will come for a second time and he won't be born in a little out of the way village this time coming quietly in the night. He'll come as a victorious conqueror riding on a white horse to judge the living and the dead, the dead in Christ. If you die before that day, you'll be raised up and you'll receive a brand new glorified body, man. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Read Revelation chapter 21. The heavenly city, Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven to earth and there will be this wonderful announcement. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will be their God and he will be with his people. And we will step into eternity future with him in bodies that never decay, that never grow old, with nothing but pure joy and bliss and purpose and worship and celebration. I don't know what all it's gonna be like. All I know is it's gonna be perfect. There will never be frustration anymore. No more death, no more tears, no more sadness, no more stress, no more wars, nothing but love and joy and peace and blessing. So that's kind of the Cliff Notes version of the saga of God, man. Pretty awesome stuff. Now let's talk about this song called Saga. This is another one of the songs that goes back to 1984, the garage band I was in called Black Rose. And uh, we just went through a little season where we wrote like quite a few songs. And then we just played them and 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 did all these little garage concerts. Made these little jam box recordings of our performances. You remember jam boxes, of course, right? You drop a tape in there and you could hit record. And it wasn't the most professional way to make a recording. But man, I'm so glad I have those recordings. I'll I'll share some of those with you uh, sometime soon. But anyway, this is another one of those songs that I wrote with my acoustic guitar sitting on the couch at 10th Street. I remember sitting in the front room and uh, just noodling and uh, um, 
it was it was one of these staccato picking things where I was just doing a little chord walk down thing, and and I thought, man, this just sounds pretty. That sounds cool. And then I I I, I that that became kind of the the verse. And uh, then when I got with the band, we started jamming and came up with you know the rest of the parts and the chorus and stuff. Sometime I'll have to let you hear the Jambox recording version of this with Lisa Carper singing it. I'm 99% sure I have her singing it, and uh, it would be cool. But I, of course, I, I rewrote the lyrics for this. I honestly don't even remember what the original lyrics were about, but uh, I know that I turned them around and made them into Jesus honoring lyrics, man. And and it's all about this saga that we just walked through man life is a saga it's a journey i know it seems short sometimes when you look back and go wow where did all the years go and then there's a lot of ways in which life just seems long because we're sojourners and we know we're not home yet and we're longing for that day the rescue has already been accomplished we are redeemed we are loved we are forgiven and so we look forward to that day when the sky splits as we journey through our saga and that's what this song's about. And I hope that it really and truly rocks you up. I hope this podcast has been a blessing to you, man. I hope this song will get your head banging a little bit, your heart pumping, and just remind you that God is awesome and that he loves you and that he's with you on your saga. Here it is, man. The Out of the Hellhole 2004 version of Saga. Can't stand alone 
Hey, man, thanks so much for hanging out with me on this podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it, and I hope it totally rocked you up for Jesus. As we wrap things up here, let me quickly say, if you dig what I'm doing, man, and you're blessed by the music, the podcast, the teaching videos, etc., and you want to support this ministry, this mission to reach classic metalheads for Jesus, I want to invite you to head over to my Patreon page and learn how your just couple dollars a month will make a huge difference in this ministry. And also about some amazing exclusive benefits that you'll receive in exchange for your support. The link to my Patreon page will be at the very top of the show notes. So head over there, check it out, learn about it, pray about it. And whatever you decide, man, God bless you. And thanks for being part of the Pastor Brad Rocks family, man. Remember to like, share, subscribe, leave comments, all those things that helps the show to grow. Really appreciate it. Stop by PastorBradRocks.net sometime. Over there, you can learn all about the ministry, the music, get some free uh, music downloads, all kind of cool stuff. Also, if you're interested in following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, best decision you'll ever, ever, ever make, promise bar none. You can learn about that over at PastorBradRocks.net as well, or leave a comment here. I'll get back with you. Shoot me an email at PastorBrad at AOL.com. Yes, I still use AOL. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Thanks for hanging out with me, man. Until next time, keep your eyes on Jesus. God bless you. Pastor Brad, out.